0: Hey, good morning. Uh, If you would, would you grab the pew Bible in front of you so we can all kind of speak from the same page, and turn to page 1022, 1022, and we'll read a passage here in just a minute. And as you do that, let me welcome you to Lion and Lamb. Uh, For those of you who are visitors or here for the first time, uh, I'm Kent Vincent, and and I will teach uh, about once a month. And uh, we're in a passage that uh, is important to all of us today on the blessings of abiding. And we're going to read together right now, starting in 1 John 2 at verse 28, and we're going to read into chapter 3 to uh, to verse 3. So together, let's start. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Lord God, thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray that you would open open hearts and ears that uh, this would fall on fertile ground, Lord. We give you all the praise and all the glory now in Jesus' name. So, uh, as you can see from this passage uh, in our study of the book of 1 John, where the overall topic is the assurance of our salvation to make us firm, that John, once again, uses the phrase little children because of his loving care for the saints. But here he points out the coming of Jesus, and he wants us to be confident or assured when Jesus returns. Uh, And as I mentioned, this is an overall study of the whole book. And as a review, uh, as we've studied this book, up to this point, John has challenged and encouraged us to find our joy and fellowship with our Father and His Son, to walk in the Father's light and draw near to His Son, Jesus. And after salvation, He calls us to obey and love Him and to love others as well. And to do this, we've got to understand our spiritual position and not be deceived by the world, particularly by those who call themselves Christ These are false Christs, or as John uses the term, antichrists, who deny the deity of Jesus. So in our passage today, John calls us to abide in Jesus. And the future coming of Jesus is motivation for living a righteous life. And this hope of his coming and our future transformation to be like him should transform our lives now. So we're going to discuss four spiritual blessings that this abiding in Christ brings. And we're going to start here with the first one, which is confidence at His coming. And in verse 28 it says, Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. This word abiding Is a theme that continues on from his discussion about the antichrist and it's in the greek it's a it's a present imperative meaning it's a command to abide in him and with this call to remain in communion with christ he's seeking to encourage both our sanctification which is living according to god's design and purpose for our lives but also our assurance salvation and his main point here in verse 28 is that christ will return. Jesus said so in John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So he's going to come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when you stand before him, you and I, the question is, how do we want to respond Okay. If ashamed, we've already seen a picture of that in the garden, where Adam and Eve, after the fall, they ran and hid. But if confident, I hope we've got a little video here that will give us an image of what it might be like. That's what we want, to run to our father as a little child after his, his or her father has been gone for an extended absence. Here's a question, though, that I've got. To whom is John speaking here? If he's addressing true believers, is it possible to be saved and ashamed at the same time. Uh, John told us uh, in 1 John 1 that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? But that doesn't imply that we're never going to sin. Yeah, we're forgiven and cleansed from the control of, the punishment for and upon confession, the guilt that arises due to our unrighteousness. But what we do with our lives on a day-to-day basis is another matter. And we know that the works of the saved will be judged at the judgment or bama seat of Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that those who trust in the foundation of Jesus Christ, thus saved, will build upon that foundation with certain works. Now, this isn't earning salvation. You've got the foundation, you're saved, but you build upon that foundation which determines what you and I will live in, so to speak, are rewards in heaven. And these works that build upon the foundation can be out of gold, silver, or precious stones, or they might be wood, hay, or straw. But as he says there, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself shall be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that last phrase means, but I know that gold, silver, and precious stones indicate works that endure, that build upon, and result in reward. Wood, hay, and straw seem to be less so, in fact, may diminish our reward in heaven. So... If I am saved, yet my life has been characterized by, well, yeah, I I attend church and I listen to Christian radio, but my investment in the kingdom is more on the combustible side of Paul's spectrum, Uh, I might very well be ashamed as I watch those works burning up before me. But there's another possible interpretation here that John is speaking to those who think they're saved but are not that some will be ashamed at his coming because, really, they're lost. Uh, In Mark 8, Jesus says this to those following him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does a man profit to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And here's the key part. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, like today, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The object of this shame is not our charred and worthless works, but it's Jesus that we're ashamed of. Now, I could be wrong, but this seems the more likely target of John's words. Now, remember, the goal of this letter is assurance of salvation. He reiterates the warning that Jesus gave us in Matthew 7 that there are those who are saved and there are those who are thinking they're saved but just simply going through the motions. Or they may be deceived into thinking they're saved, but their faith is disingenuous. May not be true faith. These are the folks who will not stand for Jesus when he's disparaged. They won't. Uh, they won't stand up. They won't witness to a friend because the friend might be offended. They're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. And now, whatever John's meaning here, the bottom line is this: Whenever we see Jesus, we we want to run to him. We do not want to run away and hide. So we want to have the confidence and joy of a child running to his loving Father. Another blessing that we can see is proof of parentage. In verses 29 through 3.1 we read, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now, in my work in adoption, we are always concerned about the major issue of parentage. Maternity is almost always certain, but paternity is often a major issue. It's common in our culture to have more than one possible father identified, and therefore, uncertainty because uh, testing is often impossible due to lack of of uh, of cooperation Uh, we have to be safe and look at every possible parent in the situation to make sure that the the adoption is solid in short we may never know for sure John does not want us to have that kind of uncertainty when it comes to our spiritual parentage he wants us to know that each believer was adopted as a child of God and just as an adopted child knows and his or her earthly father by the decree of adoption which makes that child as much an heir as a naturally born child to do that uh, John uses what some call a fruit root argument he starts by stating that Jesus is righteous And from that, we can conclude that the fruit of our righteous works reveals that in our roots, in our hearts, we have been born of him. Uh, Jesus refers to being born again in John 3, as does Peter in uh, 1 Peter 1. Again, these works do not save us. Rather, it's our new birth that comes before our new behavior, which is evidence of being born again. Paul explains this new relationship in Romans eight, where he says, uh, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So, just as an adoption decree proves the new parentage of a child, these practices of righteousness after genuine confession and belief are proof of our new parentage with our Heavenly Father and therefore give us assurance of salvation. But it's even better than that. John infers that this relationship is not an obligation of God. Just as no couple can be required to adopt a child, neither is God the Father. An adoptive family must truly love a child to bring that child into their home. In the same way, at salvation, we come into God's family, we become His children only because of His great love for us. His is a love. That will never end. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. In this new relationship, we are called children of God, and we bear his name. But it's more than just a name. This is who we really are as a child of God, and we have his nature as well. I used to be a slave to sin, and now I am a bond servant of Christ, and I go by the name of Christian. This relationship also balances me. Uh, The fact that my identity is in His loving adoption and regeneration, that humbles me. But yet that same identity gives me security and confidence and certainty of my eternal Father. John goes on to say that the world does not understand us or this relationship. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And really, this should come as no surprise. After commanding us to love one another, Jesus warns us in John 15 that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as one of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Okay, now, at this point, you might be thinking, uh... This is not New York City or San Francisco. Kent, this is Kansas. And most of the people I believe who are not believers, they're friendly. We get along just fine. And certainly, it should not be our goal to strive to be hated. We should be a lighthouse to others around us, to draw others to God's love, and use our service to others as a magnet. Nevertheless... As we stand for God's truth, even in love, the world is becoming more and more hateful and antagonistic toward our presence. And this takes us back to the old rhetorical question. If it ever became a crime to be a Christian, as it is in some countries, would there be enough evidence to convict me? Um, Another way to put this is that Would anybody recognize us as one of his children by the way we conduct our lives? Would we live up to our name? That's a tough question, for me, anyway. Another blessing is conformance to Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is." A couple of our sons, along with a couple of Rick and Marie's sons, do remodeling. Lydia does some of the redecorating, and Chrissy sometimes moonlights as the cleaning lady. Uh, And within the last uh, year or so, uh, they took over a burned-out shell of a house in central Topeka, vacant for years, that reeked of smoke and had charred windows around. And they turned it into a beautiful, clean, and bright home that a Christian family of seven is overjoyed to own. The transformation was truly amazing. Now, at salvation, what happens to us is much more than a remodel or even a rescue. It starts with a process of total transformation. And we know a few things about that transformation. One is that we are children of the Father, And as such, you and I are loved right now. At this very moment, you and I, as believers, are his sons and daughters. He created and redeemed us. John tells us a few verses later in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So as his children, we are loved, and we love and obey him. Therefore, we do not keep sinning. Now, we're, not sal- we're not perfect in salvation, we know that. But genuine conversion results in a desire to obey and stop sinful ways. However, what we will be ultimately is not so clear. Verse 2 brings up a tension within the experience of believers. We know that we're now saved, or we should, uh, as his beloved children, but yet we do not understand all the blessings and benefits that come with salvation. There was a phrase, I think it was maybe in the 90s, that went something like this. Please be patient, God is not finished with me yet. Okay. Another way to say that is that each one of us is a work of art by God still on the easel, still working on us, in progress. And this is a process of spiritual maturation that we call discipleship that all of us are engaged in. And even a spiritual giant like Paul, knew that he was in that process. He says in 1st Corinthians 13, "When I was a child I spoke as a child, thought as a child, reasoned as a child. But when I became a man I put away childish ways. And now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall see, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known." So just as the remodelers envision and transform an unlivable and filthy structure into, a, into something beautiful in which, to, in which to live, so God knows and transforms each one of us as dirty and neglected orphans into beautiful and beloved adopted children. Finally, John reveals one of the most amazing truths of his word here. When he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is so being transformed is a great thing being in his presence is even better but becoming like jesus is simply unimaginable the psalmist says that as for me i shall behold your face in righteousness when i awake i shall be satisfied with your likeness William Alexander was a missionary to the kingdom of Hawaii in the mid-1800s. And he recounted that when they translated 1 John 3, 2 into their native language, the Hawaiian natives exclaimed, No, no, it is too much. Let us instead write down that we shall be permitted to kiss his feet. Being like Jesus was just too much for these people to imagine that they would have the privilege of doing and being. But John says it's true. And we don't know what being like him will be, but clearly it will be more than anything we have ever hoped for or even imagined. The last blessing that we're going to talk about today is purification. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Knowing we're secure for eternity as his adopted children and that we will become like Jesus gives us about as much hope as one can have. Amen? Thank you. So if we believe what John tells us, what should be our response? And for gifts like that, do you think that becoming pure is over the top? Too much to ask? if I really think about it, I've come to the realization that I should naturally be delighted to pursue that goal. Now, to be pure is to be free from contamination. And of course, the problem is that we know that we can never be as pure as Jesus. Does that realization mean that we do not seek purification? Well, think about this. We know that we were created in the image of God and being like him. Those are proper descriptions of Christ followers. Now, an image is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. You with me? The image has definite qualities that make it clear that it's representative of or associated with a three-dimensional object. It is close, and it is like the object, but it is not equal to the object. The image will never be the same as the object. It will only be like the object. So if any of you have bought, I think they're called 3D TVs, okay? Don't, not asking anybody to admit it here. You've been scammed, okay? It may look like, I've, I've seen those in, in the SAMs, you know. It kind of looks like it's 3D, but if you feel it, it's two-dimensional, Okay, and we're now told that we can get something called 4D sonograms again. I don't know what that is. I don't know what the fourth dimension is. I know what the fifth dimension is. That was a band in the 70s. But (laughs) but honestly, I don't know, but it's not. It's two dimensional. If it's not the real thing, it's just an image. Now. As. Images. We know that we exist in three dimensions, okay? We are, but we're called these images, and this is so in the sense that we are something less than, but representative of him. As images of God, we have qualities like like God does. We know a few things, God knows everything. We are here now in this place for a period of time, God is ever-present everywhere for eternity. We have some power. He is all-powerful. Paul calls our marriages images of the oneness of Christ and his bride, the church. So it is in this sense, if you can think about this, that we purify ourselves as he is pure. So what I ask is you not fall into the trap of rationalization. Well, you know, to purify myself as he is pure sounds like a great thing in your message Kent, but it's totally impossible. Now, I know I'll never be as pure as Jesus and I you know everybody makes mistakes, don't they? And doesn't the word say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? So, if this is truly mission impossible, maybe I don't think about purifying myself on a day-to-day basis. But Thank you for mentioning it, Kent. It's a good thought. Yeah. Well, have you ever thought or been tempted to think like that like I have? After I've considered this, considered John's words, may I respond with all the gentleness and sensitivity that I possess? May I? It's a Satan's lie. Okay? Okay? That's what it is. Of course, Satan's goal is to take our eye off the ball that's coming right down the middle of the plate. He wants to distract us from John's words here about, our, about being purified. Now, if this does not occur to you, what difference this makes for you and me, let me say something to you that Christian and I have found ourselves saying to each other regularly these days at this point in life. It's the short-term memory that goes first. Okay, We have lots of opportunities to say that. You see, it wasn't but 15 minutes ago that we read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All means all the saved. Why are the saved judged? So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And if we consider how important eternity is, it might just help us be more attentive to John's words here. And in that light, perhaps freeing ourselves from contamination of the world should be our goal, or maybe even our passion. Now, today we've been addressing people who know or should know that they're saved, and our primary goal has been and continues to be to strengthen our assurance of salvation. However, in a group this size, there are doubtless people who have doubts. They might be saved, but they've got doubts. Or maybe they're not. Or maybe they know that they've never confessed Jesus as Lord and, and accepted Him as their Savior. Whatever camp in which you put yourself, I urge you to consider what John and the other Bible writers say that. We are all imperfect. We're all sinners, but God is perfect in every way. This means, first, that He is perfectly righteous and clean, and He can allow no impurity in His presence. It also means He's perfect justice. And by that standard, none of us desire or deserve to be in His presence. So, to spend eternity with Him requires a sacrifice to cleanse us and pay for our sins. Thankfully, the good news is that he is perfect mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he gives us what we do not deserve by sending his son to suffer and die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. This is his unbelievable grace. You and I can't work hard enough to earn that gift. It comes only by his grace, which is a demonstration of, of his perfect love for each one of us. So it's when we recognize his grace and his love that we love and obey him out of thankfulness and that we love and serve others as he has commanded. And as we allow his spirit to purify us, cleanse us from our own unrighteousness, we can know, we can have assurance that he has saved us. So the main point of this message is that blessings that we have discussed and others are available for you as a true believer in Jesus as your Savior. And that assurance and other blessings will be yours if you abide, you remain and grow in fellowship with him. Uh, One of the uh, great old hymns was written by Francis Jane Crosby. And as the worship team comes up, Would you listen to these words? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir as an adopted child of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Another stanza says, perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. And then the chorus ends with this. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Now, some of you know the life story of Fanny Crosby. As a young child, being treated for an eye problem, she was blinded by a quack position for life and instead of allowing her life to be eaten up in bitterness she praised the Savior by writing over 8,000 hymns for his glory Fanny knew that he is coming and so despite her blindness She was watching and waiting, looking above for the Savior who she praised. So no matter what life has brought your way, no matter how hard you have fallen, if you are saved, this is your hope and these are your blessings if you abide in Him. Now, we don't know what next year or tomorrow or the next moment may bring. So if you have doubts or if you know you're not saved, please do not wait. Please talk to any one of the leaders here or anyone else who you're sure is saved. Make this your story and have blessed assurance. Father in heaven, we just give you all the praise because you knew that we would stumble. After the fall, Lord, the seed remained in us, but thankfully at salvation, your seed takes root. And Lord, we pray that each one here would come to know you if they haven't, but if they have, they would be sure of their salvation and that there would be no doubt. Lord, work in us so that we can be sure of that by the way that we conduct ourselves, by our love for you, our obedience to you, and by our love and service of others. We give you all the praise again, Lord. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.